You're listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go, a podcast that'll change how you think and change your life. I'm Willie Horton and I'm a psychologist. I've been helping people change their lives since 1996. Broadcasting from the French Alps and delighted to have you along. Let's take this week's step in the right direction. There is, according to all kinds of different universities, but the one that immediately springs to mind is Harvard, there is a 96% chance that you have no idea of your own potential. There's a 96% chance that you've no idea who you actually are. There's a 96% chance that you are walking blind through what you call your life every day, merely existing. Many years ago, and it's nearly 26 years ago since I started doing this, many years ago, somebody who booked on one of my open workshops in Dublin at the time, we're talking about the late 90s, booked and paid and didn't turn up and subsequently told me that she was afraid of discovering who she might really be. Actually, as it turns out, she was afraid of leaving who she thought she was behind. She was afraid of losing some of the people who she thought were her friends behind. She was afraid of change, and that's understandable because the human mind is designed to rebuff change. The human mind is designed to keep things just as they are, regardless of how discomforting or uncomfortable or horrible things might actually be. Horrible is a big word, but horrible is a word that could easily be used to describe two-thirds of people who claim they're suffering from stress every day. Why is it horrible? Because stress as the World Health Organization confirms, is actually slowly killing you. Stress is actually slowly doing things to your brain that will lead to dementia and Alzheimer's before it actually kills you. Stress is something that two-thirds of people are not suffering from every day, but doing to themselves every day because stress is a uniquely personal experience brought about by those using their minds normally who don't understand what is going on in the here and now. And most importantly, don't understand who they actually are. That is the subject of today's episode. Who are you? You probably have a good impression of who you are, but it is no more than that. In fact, it isn't even your impression of who you are. People often tell me that they are, perhaps, let, let's take a simple example. People will often tell me, oh, I'm introverted, thinking, by the way, that that's a bad thing. And other people will tell me or almost boast that they are extroverts. There's no such thing as an introvert or an extrovert. There's no such thing as such a neat box into which we can put somebody or ourselves for that matter. And if we were to put ourselves in such a box, we would constrain ourselves from our own inner potential. Introvert, extrovert, self-confident, lacking in self-confidence, 
suffering from low self-esteem, a nervous kind of person. I'm a shy person. I'm a lazy person. I'm a stupid person. None of these is true. They are all labels. They are labels that we take to heart and call them not just our own, but actually call them us, who we think we are. I'm not sure if people who invented personality tests should ever be forgiven for the fact that not only do they encourage people to believe that they are this, that or the other, they actually put them in that particular box. And the key thing you and I need to understand is there is no box. Anything you think about yourself is simply what you think about yourself. In other words, it is the product of thought. It is not who you actually are. Over the years, people have said to me, oh, I'm great at this, that or the other. I am wonderful at motivating people. In other words, people have perceived strengths as well as perceived weaknesses. Of course we do, we're a mixed bag. But the fact of the matter is that they are perceived strengths, just as the weaknesses are perceived weaknesses. They are perceptions. They are your understanding of who you are. Now, we understand what's going on in the world through a process known as cognitive appraisal. In other words, we take the raw data that our five senses tells us. We take what we see, feel, hear, smell and taste. We pass it through our understanding of, most importantly, self. And we make up our own version of reality. That is what I meant a moment ago when I said that stress was a uniquely personal experience. Something could happen to people. The same thing could happen to people. And you would have two completely different reactions. One would be motivated by whatever happened. The other would be stressed by whatever happened. The key thing is they're both reactions. In other words, they're not a proper appraisal and understanding what is actually going on. They're knee-jerk reactions based on the way in which the normal mind, using what cognitive psychology calls the automatic pilot, knee-jerk reacts to everything that it thinks is going on. At the most fundamental level of your everyday experience of what you call your life, you are reacting to who you think you are. You learned who you think you are when you are young and impressionable. You learned who you think you are based on things that were done for you, but mainly to you when you were young and impressionable. You learned through a process known as snapshot learning. You took psychological snapshots of events that made you feel in particular inadequate or uncomfortable about yourself. Why would you take such negative psychological snapshots instead of loads of lovely, fluffy, woolly, cuddly, cozy, positive snapshots? Because erring on the side of negativity kept us on our toes 10,000 years ago. I mean, if you were out hunting for tonight's dinner, 
10,000 years ago, and you only had a rose-colored perspective on you and your world, but most importantly, on your own abilities. Say you thought you were the most wonderful, most powerful hunter on the face of the earth, and it was all so easy for you, and nobody else could hunt like you. And one of those days, you're out preening yourself whilst a man-eating tiger takes your head off. It's far better from an evolutionary perspective. It's far better from the survival of the fittest to think that your glass is half empty rather than half full. In other words, it's an evolutionary defense mechanism. It is something that enabled us survive when we were hunter-gatherers. And if you're using your mind normally now in the 21st century, it is something that is enabling you survive now but it's not enabling you achieve anything else that you would love to achieve in your life. And it is in particular clouding you from your own understanding of who you are. As I said, you learned who you think you are when you were young and impressionable. In particular, you learned the foundational stuff about yourself between your second and third birthday. This third year of your life is very important because during that third year of your life, you begin to understand that everybody else has their own particular perspective on life and particular perspective on what is going on. It's the unique perspective that I talked about earlier on when I talked about stress. Now, if other people have different perspectives from you, you need to in certain circumstances, bring people around to your way of seeing things. You need to begin to be able to collaborate with people, communicate with people, negotiate with people, and indeed manipulate people. These are the skills that we learn during the third year of our lives. And most importantly, it is through this interaction with other people and learning what cognitive psychology calls theory of mind during this third year of our lives that we begin to learn about the fundamentals of being, the fundamentals of being you. This, as I said a minute ago, is done through snapshot learning. Let me give you a classic example. Many, many years ago, I met a client who ultimately became a very good friend who was the world's worst public speaker putting it mildly <laughs> it wasn't that he struggled through a presentation it wasn't that he would bore you to death or put you to sleep it was that you would become so embarrassed for him you'd be hoping for a hole to open up in the ground that would swallow him up so there was a load of people in a room himself included while he was making a presentation would be hoping that he would simply disappear run out of the room so to speak Hold that thought for just a moment, because he told me that when he was just around three years old, coming up to Christmas, he was stood up in front of a big family gathering on Christmas Eve. The whole family, he came from a farming background, the whole family, cousins, aunts and uncles, would all come together on Christmas Eve. And he was, to use his own words, bullied by his mother into standing up to sing his party piece. And just as he started to sing how much is that doggy in the window? A couple of his uncles started falling around the place laughing. He burst into tears and ran out of the room, locked himself in his bedroom, wouldn't come down for the rest of the evening. This 
is one of those events that I was talking about a minute ago. This is one of those events that happens to you, that enables you, if that's the right word, take a psychological snapshot of not the event, but how you feel about yourself as a result of the event. In other words, the snapshot is visual. Yeah, I can see, I can see three uncles breaking their heart laughing at me. But actually, the impact of the snapshot, the emotional impact of the snapshot is what matters. This is a classic example of what developmental psychology and cognitive psychology would call a formative psychological experience, the taking of a psychological snapshot through what is known as flashbulb learning or snapshot learning. Something that has that impact on you when you are three years old becomes, believe it or not, a belief. It becomes a deeply embedded program in the part of your brain that will enable you survive in later life. Think about what I said earlier on about survival and how the normal mind is designed to enable us as hunter-gatherers survive and little else. The little else that happens throughout the course of the day is stuff that we do using what cognitive psychology calls the automatic pilot. Now, we have an automatic pilot, again, for evolutionary reasons, because it enables us to ensure that our real attention is always held in reserve should a life-threatening situation be encountered. In other words, should a woman or man-eating tiger leap from the bushes. Everything else we do automatically. In other words, you dress yourself automatically. Don't tell me that you think about which leg you put into your trousers every morning first, or which arm you put into your shirt or jacket every morning first. We do it automatically. Don't tell me that you think about how you brush your teeth every morning. You do it automatically. Don't tell me that you think about how you walk You put one foot in front of the other automatically. And the interesting thing about that is that we put one foot in front of the other automatically, having taken a psychological snapshot during the first year of our life that showed us how people who were really important to us, perhaps a mother or a father, actually moved around on two feet instead of crawled around on all fours or or, or clambered around on their stomach. That was something that made a big impression on us. And that is a program that you are using to this very day to enable you to make it through the day. This friend of mine had a psychological snapshot of how he would behave in any situation where he was put up in front of people. It wouldn't enable him to be a great public speaker. It wouldn't enable him even be comfortable standing up in front of people. It would enable him make it through the experience. Because, as I said a minute ago, and as I keep repeating, we're designed to make it through the day. We're designed to survive. We're not designed to soar to the heights that we would love to experience in our lives. We're designed to just make back safely to bed tonight. So when I met my friend, as I said a few minutes ago, he was the world's worst public speaker. Why? Because using his mind automatically, as we all do until we understand that there is another way, and obviously that's what all these podcast episodes are about, but using his mind normally, he would stand up in front of a group of maybe 100 people, 
and his automatic pilot would say to itself, how am I going to make it through this experience? And it would say to itself, oh, I have a program that will enable me to make it through this experience. And it digs up the program of his three uncles laughing at him. And so he sweats and so he mumbles and so he fumbles. And so he embarrasses himself and embarrasses all other hundred people in the room. But he makes it through the experience. That's the key thing. And that is what his mind is designed to enable him do. It isn't designed to enable him impress the people to whom he is speaking. That is a, as I said, it's a classic example of how the normal mind works. It is a classic example, most importantly, of how you don't just have the initial impression of yourself that you might be an introvert or shy or useless standing up in front of other people in this particular example. It isn't just that you have that belief because it was such a deeply seated, impressive snapshot when you took it in the first place. It is that you keep confirming to yourself every time that you stand up in front of people that you are useless at public speaking. In other words, your belief brings about a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, as I said, this is only one example. We are complex people in terms of the number of psychological snapshots we took during our formative years to enable us make it through the day. The Neural Lab in UCLA reckons that the normal mind entertains about 70,000 thoughts coming from our psychological database of thoughts every single day. The lab at UCLA also calculates that about 97% of today's thoughts are the same as yesterday's and tomorrow will be a repeat performance. And that is what I was saying a moment ago. This guy keeps pulling up the same thoughts, the same programs, the same self-belief about his own perceived inadequacy of being useless in front of other people. So in other words, it isn't just a belief he had in the first place. It's a belief that's reinforced again and again and again. Every time he drags himself mumbling, fumbling, perspiring and embarrassed through such a situation. You have 70,000 thoughts running through your head. When they all come together, they form a tapestry of who you think you are. You have self-limiting beliefs. You have perceived inadequacies. You have perceived strengths, none of which is real. All of which are the result of things that happened for you, or as I said earlier on, most importantly, to you when you were young and impressionable. The foundational stuff you learned during the third year of your life, you learned more stuff up to the age of 11 or 12, but they were filtered through the foundational stuff that you learned during the third year of your life. After the age of 11 or 12, you learned nothing new about yourself, which is possibly just as well now that I think about it, for the simple reason that all the muck that you learned about yourself up to the age of 12 had nothing to do with who you actually are. It was stuff that was done to you by people who didn't know who they were either. They were living through their own muck in their own head. And so the drama of normal so-called living continues from one day to the next as we all live in our own personal Groundhog Day created by those 70,000 thoughts that all spring from the same well of muck that we learned when we were young and impressionable. 
no wonder people don't know who they are. And, and this might sound strange, no wonder people are afraid to discover who they might actually be. Because at least, based on who they think they are, they have a few friends. They hang around with other lunatics. They hang around with more normal crazy people. And the safety in numbers, that's an evolutionary thing too. So what have I lost my friends, even though we're all mad together? What have I actually discovered my potential? Would I be on my own? Would I be different? You'd certainly be different because you certainly would not be the person that you think you are. Our thoughts constrain us. Our thoughts take us away from the reality of the here and now. That is how some people are motivated and other people are stressed by the same event. It is all down to the body of thought that we drag around us. Uh, the body of thought that an awful lot of people call their baggage, their baggage weighing them down. What if you dropped your baggage? What if your friends suddenly realized, oh, oh, he's behaving differently or she's behaving differently? Or as somebody said to me a couple of days ago, what if my friends don't understand what I'm actually even saying anymore? Because I'm saying things and doing things differently as a result of discovering my own inner potential. The fear, of course, of losing your friends is just another thought. I recollect that same individual that I mentioned earlier on who booked on the workshop and then didn't turn up because she was afraid to discover who she might actually be. She was also afraid that she might lose some of her friends. Eventually, she did the workshop and about a year later, she said, the acquaintances that I thought were my friends drifted away as a result of me discovering who I actually am, as a result of which I have some really good friends around me, some really new friends around me as well. And I am living a completely different life based on who I am and what I can achieve and what I am achieving effortlessly as a result of me doing what I need to do to get to where I want to go without having to claw my way through the muck of the 70,000 thoughts that I had in my own head. That sentence, which is a direct quote from the client in question, is actually worth listening to a couple of times. Imagine being free to do just what you needed to do, to live the kind of life you would love to live, free in particular of the self-limiting beliefs that you have about yourself, free of the labels that you have worn proudly, the introvert, the extrovert, the shy, the this, the that, or the other that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. How wonderful would it be to be able to I used this word earlier on, soar. But there's a key word that my client used in that sentence that I quoted a moment ago. She said it was effortless. This is a word I love, one of my favorite words, because when you discover who you actually are, when you really know yourself, when you really discover your true self, there are no thoughts to get in your way of experiencing the moment and effortlessly doing 
what you need to do to get you to where you really and truly want to go. You can see effortlessness before your very eyes. All you have to do is turn on some of the sports channels because there are some players in every sport that are head and shoulders above everybody else. Sometimes we think it is some kind of natural talent. Sometimes we think it is learned. But the fact of the matter is that for whatever reason, they are completely and utterly in the zone, just doing what they're doing to the very best of their ability, free from all thought, as you watch them. And they are, they look different. They seem to have more time on the ball, for example. And interestingly enough, from the research carried out by the universities of Milan and Chicago, people who are in flow do have more time on the ball because time, like effort, like stress, like being motivated, is all about what is going on in your own head. Imagine being able to do what you need to do free of the thoughts that hold you back, free of the thoughts that would say to you, oh, you couldn't do that. You know, you're shy or you're introverted or you're stupid or you're, you know, you're a useless public speaker. You couldn't do that. Free of all those thoughts so that you could just do what you need to do in this moment effortlessly to get you to where you want to go. The effortlessness comes from being free of thought. The effortlessness comes from being in the moment fully aware fully self-aware of who you actually are. And the really interesting thing is that modern neuroscience has confirmed that effortlessness is something that can be measured in the brain while it is actually happening. It is a scientific fact. So you have a choice. You have a choice, my friends. Do you want to continue being constrained by who you think you are? Or do you want to discover your own inner potential. You discover your own inner potential by, to quote John Kabat-Zinn from the University of Massachusetts Medical School, by coming to your senses, by practicing seeing, feeling, and hearing, smelling, and tasting what's actually going on in the here and now, rather than using the muck of the 70,000 thoughts that you're carrying around with you to discolor, to blind you from what is actually going on in the here and now. I leave you with one final scientifically validated fact. The only way that you can discover your inner potential is through meditation. Talk to you again next week. You've been listening to succeed just let go to get involved join me in my facebook group strangely enough called to succeed just let go and for more information visit www.willie-hall.com